0: Mike, Mike, and Oscar. And the Oscar goes to... 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 to, to Awards, season, and... week, And the Oscar, Oscar race checkpoint. And we're back. Welcome. To another episode of Mike, Mike and Oscar. I'm also, Mike, handling the introductions today because this will be a solo show uh, and an Oscar race checkpoint slash movie review handful, I would say. Maybe not a movie review bundle, but a handful of my first reactions to several big new Oscar contenders uh, that, that I've seen recently either at the New York Film Festival, and I'll finish with my final day there seeing Maestro in May, December, but I will start with Killers of the Flower Moon. And uh, yeah, I've tweeted about it. I was not, I was not happy with that one in a shocking, stunning development uh, after Mike and I have previewed Killers of the Flower Moon and we've been hyped and, and, and we've been, it's one of our most anticipated films of the year, so I'm I'm hoping my thoughts will change on rewatch. But right now I'm I'm about to uh, I'm about to slam a Martin Scorsese movie. Oh my God! I can't believe it. I, I just I love Martin Scorsese movies. It's just this one was not for me necessarily. Anyway, uh, I do want to say. These reviews will remain spoiler-free, uh, which of course is a relative term, but it, but as a general rule, I will steer clear of specifics beyond the premise and beyond the act one of each film, so basically setups only. All right, Killers of the Flower Moon, and, and go back and listen to our last episode where the BO boys, the box office boys, came onto the show and we previewed. I think the financial future of of Apple original films, and certainly of Killers of the Flower Moon, it was projected to go as high as forty million. It's it looks like it's coming in much lower than that, around twenty three. Maybe it'll get up higher uh, as the weekend moves along. It is a rainy one on the East Coast here, so maybe more people will go and see Killers of the Flower Moon. But it does line up with some Scorsese openings. The Departed was like a twenty eight million dollar opening, I think, in October. Uh, years ago so you never know it could climb it could have legs we will hope so I went to see Killers of the Flower Moon with my brother Daniel he and I had planned to do this for a while Uh, we enjoyed a fun conversation beforehand going through all of Scorsese's IMDB all of his hits all of our favorites I mean you know the, the the top 12 on his resume what a what a deep what a deep group of uh, tremendous movies, and yeah, Mike, Mike, and Marty probably should happen just based on quality alone. That rewatch series, uh, and I, I wish we could have swung it this year, but uh, I, you know, that's something to look forward to. Hopefully, we'll get that done. Uh, I gotta be honest; I just am stunned, and I, I, I really am stunned. By the fact that this film didn't follow through for me, and by how poorly both my brother and I received it, it's one of the more disappointing first watches I've I've ever had. Now, look, take that with somewhat of a grain of salt because that could change, and it's changed for me in the past. I've had bad first watches for some of my favorite films of all time. All the President's Men. I remember watching that as a student. Did not get it. Did not like the pacing. Uh, I'm going to criticize Killers of the Flower Moon's pacing. I could not get into All the President's Men on first watch because of the the slow pace to it. And yet, that's a film I rewatch every year. I'm glued to the screen every year. Every election cycle, I have to rewatch All the President's Men. That's an annual for me. I love it. Zodiac was another one. Zodiac was not a film I I enjoyed on first watch. And, And yet, I go back to that one almost, and maybe even more, Maybe every six months or so from David Fincher there. So those are two older examples, two recent examples that Mike and I have covered on this show. Palm Springs. Neither of us really liked Palm Springs, the uh, the comedy on Hulu there, and yet that became the the favorite movie of our year by the by the end of uh, our pandemic lives. I, maybe we we're in a aggravated state during that pandemic. We couldn't take in the comedy because life was not funny. And then next thing you know, Palm Springs, we're yucking it up with that movie for the rest of the the year. It was one of our top films of that year. And it was just one of those things where the first watch didn't work for us, either of us, I guess. So it was surprising. We were both in the same headspace there. Decision to Leave was another New York Film Festival marathon final film of the day for me. I loved the first hour. And then the last the last hour, the last, the second half, I I really struggled with it. And now Decision to Leave is one of my favorite films of that year. I've called it a masterpiece. I think it's, I I think it's tremendous. I've kept my movie subscription just to rewatch that, that film at times. So I, I I think I've rewatched it twice this year alone, but will Killers of the Flower Moon redeem itself on rewatch for me? I, I still hope so, but as Mike and I have always said since we started this podcast, you know, we're just going to be honest with you guys, and we're going to allow our values and our baggage to show, and, and that's part of the subjectivity that we are doomed to have. I I applaud everybody striving, and I admire all of us who try to, you know, strive for the objectivity, but I don't. I don't think it's a realistic thing. I don't. I don't. And I I, I get aggravated with critics who try to you know, strong arm you and tell you that, ah, oh, this is what works in a movie. And to me, that's just the blowhard way of, of of talking about film. I would rather have the conversation. And I think, you know, an episode like today is hopefully something that can start the conversation. So, you know, I, I'll make my case for why I didn't like Killers of the Flower Moon on first and And hopefully we can, you know, move forward and take that as some... Some introductory information when Mike and I either do our film study or at least we'll we'll do a a spoiler section, I think, on the next Oscar race checkpoint. Because, like, if we truly despise a movie and and, uh, if we despise a movie that everybody loves, I'm not going to I'm not going to torture you guys with a full hour and a half episode on it. So we'll just do like a 10 minute outro or something in terms of a spoiler section. I mean, that's happened before you guys get that. But, okay, number one, and again, I'll stay non-spoilers here, but number one, I did not expect such a slow and methodical tempo to Killers of the Flower Moon. The Irishman had its lulls. Obviously, Silence was a slow film. However, I heard from critics that this movie, quote, flew by, that it felt much faster than its runtime, and for whatever reason, that's what stuck in my brain. But I felt every minute of the 3 hours and, and 26. Like this was this movie took its time. It it felt like a movie that teachers show their students and the students are bored to tears. That's what it felt like to me. It felt like a movie that I've seen in 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 my 8th grade English class that my teacher loved that I was never going to be into and I'm sorry. I I don't know if I, I don't know if, if if it'll be that way or I don't know if I'm just in the wrong headspace to take this movie in right now, or I wanted a faster tempo film because I expected one from Scorsese, who even with the Irishman that had its lulls, like I said, I think, uh, I think he makes, you know, a a movie with narrative momentum, with propulsion, with, I don't know, this movie never had it. And I kept wondering, I kept looking at my phone, seeing where we were in the, in the runtime, doing the math because you know you got to add the 25 minutes of trailers and wondering if this movie was ever going to pick up and it really never did maybe for the last 20 minutes but other than that i just like this movie may a punishing punishingly slow tempo the second major problem i did not relate to these characters very well scorsese always tells stories about scoundrels like these. He has made a career of telling stories about evil people like these gangsters and criminals and, and yet we're sickly fascinated with them. Like these are hangout movies and maybe those are the wrong, that's the wrong way to take in his films in many a cases. But Goodfellas, I mean, who cannot? who could can, if you don't watch Goodfellas once every few years, you're missing out. I mean, that's one of the most entertaining movies ever, even though the, you know the come down from, from from the high of the first hour and a half is stark and it's it's alarming. Of course, it should be and it is. Wolf of Wall Street, etc. These movies are relentless in their pacing and, and and how charismatic some of these horrible people actually are. Killers of the Flower Moon. We're stuck in the povs of some bland, boring drunks. Uh, you know, people dealing with addiction. You got deliriously sick and miserable characters and it's just not a fun hang at all and and shame on me maybe because i thought it was gonna be but not at all uh, really a rough sit in that regard finally i think and this could be a marketing issue for me i expected a mystery thriller i got an epic three and a half hour drama the mystery goods aren't there. the thriller goods are not there. The murders are s- spaced out. It's not a who done it, a why done it. It's not. I think if if you're in for a long epic sit and a meditation on the true nature of evil, yeah, I think that's more of the the headspace you, you ought to go in for killers of the Flower Moon or at least that's the headspace I'm gonna go in for the next watch. Now I am a fan of the performances and the production values. I could see Killers of the Flower Moon getting Oscar nominations, you know, despite my rough review here. Even if my rewatch isn't good, because Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone are just that good. I think uh, Lily Gladstone, as advertised, steals the film. Uh, it's a subtle actors actor performance. I was not uh, I was not expecting the big showy performance from her necessarily, knowing her work. In certain women, uh, knowing and loving her work in Reservation Dogs, and I think she's doing the nuanced type of uh, performance that you know I, I've I've thought has been next level for the Daniel Day Lewis Oscar nominations that Mike and I have covered. You know, Phantom Threat, etc. Kate Blanchett, at times like last year, I thought she was incredible in Tar, and she's got scenes where she's not necessarily you know, going off on people, but you just, I mean, what she's doing with her, I I mean, watching Lily Gladstone leave a room and, and that just shows how magnetic her performance is. You're watching her face as she leaves the room and to see her face sink. In some instances, it's just, it's incredible work. So Lily Gladstone yet again. Uh, and finally, I hope, uh, getting the recognition she's deserved for a while in her career. Uh, I love, uh, I love the ensemble here. I, I think they're they're all committed to these roles and, and performing these roles very well. Jesse Plemons at the top of his game, but it's just a very small part. And I know there's no small parts, but it is a very small part. Robert De Niro is very good. I'm a little underwhelmed by him, however, and maybe that's because of the nature of his character. But I do I do not see the Oscar real scene, so it's not as showy a performance as you'd expect, but. Typically, those performances are are ones that I appreciate more on rewatch. So I'll be I'll be anxious to to see where I rank these performances when I do rewatch Killers of the Flower Moon. Otherwise, the costume and production design I mean they feel as expansive and extensive as you can get. Scorsese's bringing history to life here. If the costume and production design is not nominated, I would be absolutely shocked. In both instances, and like I said, this move for movie for that alone is why it's going to be shown in classrooms for for perhaps decades to come. Like I said, I'm I'm admittedly underwhelmed on some other factors. Like the score bothered me. I was not a huge fan of the score. I know some people love the the original score to this. Uh, I'm sorry, I, that wasn't for me. I I I, I don't know. I, it just didn't work for me. It, it was. I don't know it, it, for me to explain my musical taste is, is never a good way to take a podcast I always stumble around I'm not a music critic but uh, this this movie needed to have a more engrossing score in my opinion if it was gonna be the slow paced film it, it turned out to be the sound the editing uh, again I'm gonna have to reassess on my rewatch but uh, obviously it's been it's been buzzed about so that's uh, that's my look at Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm not going to grade it right now. I'm going to withhold the grade until till the rewatch does come, and I can get on the microphone with my co-host, Mike One. So I'll move into the New York Film Festival finale. I will incorporate two quickie little uh, food stories involved here. Uh, I went to the West village downtown to Au Cheval, which uh, has been rumored to have one of the very best burgers in the city. That's kind of been my, my MO this year going, getting a good burger, sitting down at a bar. I mean, that's, you know, what, for whatever reason, I just feel like that's my speed right now going to the city. I don't really want to go to some, some fancy schmancy place necessarily, even though this is definitely like a quote unquote upscale diner. I think it was advertised as, and uh, it's not cheap. Don't get me wrong, but, I was very happy to sit at the bar and good God, they sat me right in front of the chef who was making all the burgers and watching her grill and assemble everything was just pure heaven. I got to watch that for about 10, 15 minutes. It felt, it felt like it went by in a blink of an eye. I was was so (laughs) taken by her cooking up all these burgers. Finally, one with my name on it came over. Uh, I got the quote-unquote legendary double cheeseburger on the fluffy brioche bun with two beef baddies, sharp American cheddar cheese, pickles, onions, dijonaise, and the add-ons of the bacon and the farm egg. You know, I took some pictures, cut the thing right in half. The yolk broke perfectly, but it wasn't so runny like it it, it overpowered the burger. But this easily was the butteriest burger of my life. And that's probably as much the brioche bun as anything. Like, they must have just... And I, I really didn't watch... Like, the guy doing the buns was... the Toasting the buns was next to the chef that was making the burgers in front of me. So I really couldn't see him. There's like, a pole. Uh, and I couldn't see him doing all the buns. But I'm guessing they were buttered, to, to, to say the least. It, it almost tasted like a country-fried buttery biscuit burger, which... Oh my god, was it rich? So I, I love this burger. It wasn't huge. It was it was an easy, you know, eat. It wasn't like uh it wasn't like I felt full afterwards just based on the burger. Where I felt full afterwards is because I got the mac and cheese. It was the black pepper bacon mac and cheese. So I wasn't holding back. And I also got the vanilla gelato root beer float. And I haven't had a root beer float since I was a little kid at my grandmother's house. She used to make it, make them for us with vanilla ice cream and I love you, Grammy. And, you know, she's still with us here and, uh, you know, you know, knock on wood and she's, she's hanging on. And I, I, yeah, I was feeling very sentimental, and this was a very good root beer float uh, hit the spot, and I yeah I couldn't even have the whole thing because I, I over ordered, of course. I, could, I I ate about half the mac and cheese, and I drank about half of the of the root beer float. And I'm not a big, I don't usually have a ton of sweets in my real life. I try not to anyway, and this was like sugar overload for me. But easily, easily one of the best meals I've had in a long darn time. So I, I highly recommend Au Cheval. Where do I rank the Double Cheeseburger at Al Cheval? though? It's still behind the Emmy Double Stack. That, that was still my number one. I got I to admit as much. Mike Mike and Emmy Double Stack there. Uh, but uh, I waddled out of Al Cheval, Very happy and content. And I got to Maestro just in time at the Walter Reed Theater Saturday afternoon on the 14th of October, 3 p.m. Uh, a lot of pros. To maestro. And I'll, I'll do kind of a pros, a cons, and then a final grade. But first and foremost, I loved these two lead performances. Bradley Cooper, Carey Mulligan. I love their characters. I love these actors. I think they both had some stupendous Oscar reel scenes that are going to be a lot of fun to talk about going forward. And I would not begrudge an Oscar nom or an Oscar win for either Bradley Cooper or Carey Mulligan, I'm that high on both. They're both very deserving, and I understand why Cooper and Mulligan are front runners now in both lead categories. This was also a fun movie, maestro, because it's about show folk. It's about these characters who leave the stage and they go to the after party, and they're still on. They're on all the time. They're on when they're just, you know, in a park together with hanging out with each other they're entertaining each other all the time because they're in show business. They're show folk and I love movies about show folk and I love movies about endlessly entertaining characters even when their lives are falling apart and even when things are going or are, are, are being very difficult. Again, they're just relentlessly entertaining and that always helps a movie watching experience. The screenplay does not overexplain the drama regarding their personal lives and I appreciated that. So you have you have a lot of the defense mechanisms in, in on full display and how they're kind of overcompensating for all the drama going on behind their eyes in many a scenes. But the reverence that Bradley Cooper treats this audience, uh, to treating us all like adults here, not explaining his sexuality or over-explaining that, I, I, I really appreciate that. And that was one of the... Uh, One of the more refreshing aspects of this screenplay in particular. The exposition dumps were were hit and miss. Like, some of them were so on the nose, they bothered me. But others were very creative. Like, he'll be interviewed by uh by 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 you know satellite you know for for the TV or for a late night show and that guy will list his credentials and I thought it was a very solid way to handle like exposition oh here's where he's at in his career west side story just came out etc so Leonard Bernstein's character and his career arc was depicted in a fun way in that regard uh because or, or we were kept abreast of it in that regard in a fun way because this movie is mostly about like the family story here And if you're going to do that, you better show the love on screen and we better feel that love. And I, I did like the sweetness of the trailer carried over into the movie. You know, I was overwhelmed by some of the gestures and my heart melted. You know, by by how the parents interacted with the kids, and there's no wonder why the Bernstein children have been going to the film festivals and dancing during the music credits to their father's music. I mean, they they should be touched by the tribute here. And and, and look, it's an honest one at that. It's a dimensional one at that. They're showing some flaws to these characters, but it's it's very clear and and the obvious. It is very clear and obvious that these characters loved each other so much, and and how and how they were there for each other through thick and thin. I mean, that's that's a touching family story, and this movie really worked in that regard. Finally, in terms of the Oscars, uh, there's no denying the cinematography. I loved a few shots to the point where, like, when these shots play out and the characters like walk towards each other, like I'm like breaking down near tears. On several occasions, by how you know the, they blocked this film, the blocking and the framing. I just I loved how Bradley Cooper shot this movie, and uh, just shout out to uh, the cinematography for Maestro. Finally, I loved some of the middle-aged makeup. All right, let's put it this way: I love the middle-aged makeup. The elderly makeup, not so much, but the middle-aged makeup, making these thirty-something actors or what is he, early forties, making him look late fifties, early sixties. That was some of the cleaner makeup and hairstyling work I've ever seen in middle-aged movie, middle-aging movie history, I should say. If I can get my participle, uh, you know, plays on words correct. Some of the best I've ever seen. And we've seen some disastrous, like they'll literally just draw wrinkles on the eyes of a face and think that makes you look middle-aged in previous biopics. But this movie, it's next-level work in terms of the makeup and hairstyling in that regard the elderly person makeup the problem is once you have such a vibrant performance like like a Bradley Cooper performance and he's so young and energetic once you put him in that bodysuit he really looked like he was in a bodysuit and it's just tough it's tough to watch so it didn't didn't work for me and it's in the first scene of the movie where he's in this you know mid 70s makeup that you've seen in the pictures, and I think it works in the movie stills better than it works on screen. So that was a bummer. It, it kind of looked like Johnny Knoxville and Jackass bad grandpa at times. <laughs> it's just rough. Uh, but of course, the music and the sound just remarkable. It, it washes over you. I'm not a classical music aficionado at all, but I remember just saying, uh, "This is I can listen to this." for a while. I mean, I'm I, maybe I'm taken by the fact that I'm in Lincoln center and I'm right there in the mix of all the opera houses, but I, I'm feeling music for this movie. There's one, there's one uh, scene where he's conducting the full orchestra and you get to watch him conduct a full song. And it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible moment with quite the crescendo. And it made me sad that Netflix has not committed to the, to the theatrical model because this is an immersive Engrossing experience uh, on the big screen, and I, I really loved it. And I'm, I'm I hope people will go seek Maestro out in theaters for that reason. But yeah, this is the second, you know, m- music film that Bradley Cooper has has handled just expertly right now. A star is Born and now Maestro. So those are a lot of the positives. To get into some negatives for Maestro, uh, <laughs> I'm surprised at how negative some of these things are, and yet. And yet I still love the movie because some of my peccadillos are, are, are here. And I, I love the movie despite that. Now, the accents. Like, and maybe I'm a total hypocrite after giving Jodie Comer and Todd Hardy of the bike riders so much hell. Um, I probably am a total hypocrite, but Mike's not here to really drive that home. So I will just say this movie starts out with Bradley Cooper doing like Edward G. Robinson. Robinson, excuse me. It takes like five minutes for me to get in sync with the great Gatsby Party night nonsense that's starting out this movie of of them being young and in New York City and Leonard Bernstein just, yeah, same it's ridiculous. That being said, you you get over it because the movie's so charming. Uh, I'm still blown away by the fact that I don't hate this movie because of some of the the line deliveries, some of the lines in the in the script. they, they are unforgivably on the ner- nose over lines of dialogue where they're stating the theme and you recoil in your seat. Like I literally writhed in my seat by the Oscar grabbiness. And it wasn't like it wasn't intentional perhaps, but the Oscar grabbiness of some of these lines of dialogue, I wanted to die. It was everything that uh, that May December is about to criticize, <laughs> and yet this movie still had me an emotional wreck by the end of it. And yay, hey, I, I, I have not been very kind to films that have just had ruinous dialogue at times, and yet Maestro was something that I could could abide. I, I, I didn't, you know, I got over it again. So. Like I said, the the makeup and hairstyling, definitely some lows, even though some big highs. Uh, and uh, ultimately, I think the Gotham Awards are gonna pay a tribute to Bradley Cooper, and Maestro is gonna build more momentum. I think New York was a really good landing spot for it in the Spotlight section there. And I yeah, it's undeniably a B plus. B plus eighty eight is where I have Maestro right now, and uh, I was a big fan. So. That's Maestro. I did uh, want to finish my New York Film Festival experience, heading back to PJ Clark's one last time uh, after uh, after this movie before May December. And I, you know, I, I went there for drinks and a dessert, and not that I needed the dessert, but I did go there and I had like forty minutes, and I, I got an Irish coffee for some reason because I needed some caffeine, I guess. But I, I could only drink half of the Irish coffee. I'm not a fan of Irish coffee, so that was a waste of money. But what was not a waste of money was the butterscotch pudding. And the heavy whipped cream on top is probably... I could just drink a I I could, I could eat a whole barrel of that. Never mind the butterscotch pudding on the bottom. But this was a very rich butterscotch pudding. It was oh delicious. I'd, I'd eat anything in there. It was just one of those things. And then, of course, I finished that and I had to do a Guinness... Cause that's my favorite beer. And yeah. So PJ Clark's hit the spot yet again, the perfect way to close out, you know, my food adventures here for the New York film festival, the 61st edition. Can't wait till I uh, go back to New York city for Tribeca or who knows, maybe I'll, I'll, you know, my brothers and I will, we've been talking about doing like some kind of New York city movie day of some sort. So I have to figure that out. Uh, because I've been sending them all these pictures. They've been listening to pod and, And certainly they want to enjoy some of these food adventures with me. (laughs) A lot of people do. So it's it's, it's always fun to do this every year. I tried to do it up, and I hopefully hopefully succeeded. So thanks for listening, as always. And uh, hopefully uh, I can finally get on a diet now and do what I need to do. Because, yeah, I mean, my life expectancy might have been shortened by that Butterburger alone, Christ Almighty. (laughs) Anyway, one final movie, May-December. I saw it at 6.15 at the Walter Reed uh, on the 14th of October there, that same Saturday. Here's the thing with May-December. I like the movie. I like watching it. However, I think I've enjoyed thinking about May-December more than I probably enjoyed actually watching the movie for that first time. It's got all this weird soapy satire on the acting process and the tabloid takes it has on like real life source material seem secondary to what to what Todd Haynes wants to say about how exploitative we've all been in this Oscar business and and, uh, and as true crime aficionados for that matter. So this is like this meta critique, this movie, and thinking about all that and how many jives he takes, uh, the fact that this movie, May, December, is this catty comedy of manners is also such a ludicrous surprise to me. And I'm so disarmed by that fact uh, that it's funny, that it's weird, that it's, that it's that the pace is bizarre. I can't. I can't believe he pulled it off. Let me just say that May December should not be a movie that is that that works, and yet it still somehow works. That being said, it is so weird. I cannot imagine the Academy going for it. I really cannot imagine the Academy going for it, especially because it's like a deep dark criticism. <laughs> Of uh, of the acting process and of of trying to do the Oscar grab, maybe the best movie ever on the Oscar grab, or at least the most cynical movie ever on the Oscar grab that's ever been put put out there. And and Todd Haynes knows full well what he's doing, so I mean it's lambasting the uh, the acting process, or at least the cynical take on on like the true crime acting process. My God, uh, so that's uh, <laughs> that's the weirdness of May December, but I do want to comment on how he handled the subject matter cuz obviously it's a horrible true story and the subject matter is something that's been you know t- it's touched a nerve when hollywood handles this kind of subject matter in the past for me in particular and yet i just again i think the tone and and the fact that it's he's unambiguous like it's so obvious where the moral high ground is and he just stays on it it's not it's not like you're having issues with you're wrestling with how to think about these characters. You're not wrestling with how to think about these characters who have done such horrible things. But I keep laughing at my memories of these last scenes. And I wonder if this is going to become like this cult classic and I'm going to become this bizarre devotee of May, December and Todd Haynes movies. (laughs) Because that's the way I feel right now. Like I really want to rewatch this one on Netflix and I, you know, I was talking about it with a friend the other night with Andrew Morgan. In fact, I was, I was, st- was kind of low and mixed about it. And then I thought about it all day and I started writing this review and I just, I had so much fun doing that, that now I've really talked myself up for a rewatch, but I, I do have to warn you like this movie, it's a weird tempo. It's not what you think. It felt like, God, it felt like just this bizarre, you know, soap you know, it's just almost like a Pedro Almodovar melodrama in many ways. So that's not necessarily something that's always my cup of tea. I'll just put it that way. I'm a coffee guy, I guess. I like the big genre film, and I, I'm not necessarily a guy for the melodrama. But this, this worked better than most for me. And the performances are a, a big reason why. I mean, Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, Charles Melton, all three all three are fantastic. And it'd be just deliciously ironic. If any or all three of them get nominated at this year's Oscars, based on you know what they're satirizing here, so if the Academy embraces those performances, uh, you know I will I will be tickled pink and I'll be very glad. So May December definitely a solid B grade for me. Maybe that'll skyrocket up if I uh, go in for a rewatch and I laugh my ass off. Is this like an American Psycho level dark comedy? It might be. It really might be that, but first watch kind of a slow and puzzling first watch that you know you chuckle a few times and then you're like you think about it and it gets better and better so may december is one of those and uh Yeah, so that's where I will end today. I got a bunch more movies that I've been watching. We got a bunch of trailers that have been coming out. It almost seems as if every single Oscar contender yet to be released on the season has released a trailer or a second trailer or a teaser or a behind-the-scenes featurette. So Mike and I got a lot of work to do on that front. We got Critics' Choice Documentary Award nominations. We got the Doc NYC shortlist. We got... The Gotham nominations coming out next week. Mike and I will be back to talk about all of it. I think I want to wait for him to do so because, uh, yeah, I think yeah, it's, that's our bag. That's what we got to do, and and uh, I don't want to be without him on all that. So this is as far as I'll go on a solo episode. But I really appreciate everything you guys do for us, especially all of the five star ratings, all of the the reviews on Apple Podcasts, etc. That always helps us you know, widen the tent, get more people in here. And we really appreciate how much we've been growing over the years and and the steady growth of the podcast. So appreciate all of you for for helping us do that. As for what's coming next, I already hit on the Oscar race checkpoints to come. Will we do a Killers of the Flower Moon film study or not? I don't know. Let me know if you want one of those or not. If that's just going to be a bummer, we'll avoid it. And like I said, we'll do the... Uh, spoiler addendum obviously i gotta wait and see what mike's thoughts are he's in uh he's on vacation right now in las vegas and hopefully he's not wearing a barrel and hopefully he's uh, gonna come back in one piece i know he got sick i mean god what a snake bit son of a gun to go out on vacation and get sick while you're out on vacation so hopefully he can come back and be and be healthy and and mike i wish you the best uh i need those oscar odds the updated Oscar odds so we can play some bets. He's actually going to play some bets for me while he's out there. So we got to do that, buddy. Uh, if you're listening, uh, I'll have to text him on that later in the day and Venmo him. I hope it's not like a life saving Venmo where he just, Oh God, I just, I picture the worst. I picture him on such a bender on such, Oh my God, destitute. Like, how can you go to Vegas for that long? What, what a, what a guy, Michael, I wish you the best. All right. Words of wisdom, don't go to Vegas for that long. But who knows, maybe he'll come back. (laughs) He'll come back a Rich Man. Oh, my God. All right, that's enough. I'm babbling. Thank you, everybody. We will see you all.